Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. One of the trickiest issues that the pandemic raises is that of our individual privacy and secrecy and the right of the state to know us, uh, literally to know our body. This issue of privacy, of course, is not a new one. Around 10 years ago, it was raised in a more political sense by Edward Snowden, uh, who uh, became an incredibly controversial figure because of his, in his mind at least, defense of uh, our right to privacy, or at least American citizens' right to privacy. Uh, Barton Gelman is a very distinguished writer, journalist, formerly with the Washington Post, very much involved with the Snowden story. He was one of the three journalists who Snowden quote unquote trusted to tell his story. Uh, uh, Bart is the author of a new book, Dark Mirror Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Uh, Bart, is there a very clear narrative between the history of Snowden um, and the current issues and dilemmas around individual privacy in the age of the pandemic? Well, there's some connections for sure. Snowden taught us that uh, we have to pay attention to the data that's being collected about us and the uses to which it's put. The good news about the pandemic and privacy is that it's being talked about openly. There are proposals uh, to use electronic surveillance methods for contact tracing. Uh, The proposals are out in the open. Uh, Apple and Google have built an API uh, that is going to be uh, out in the open. Uh, they've got white papers about it. Uh, nevertheless, we have to be concerned about what happens next. Uh, Apple and Google are not themselves building apps to trace contacts, to track our uh, contacts with other people. They're uh, building just the APIs. They're leaving to governments or someone else in the private sector to build the apps. and what the apps actually do, what they collect, who gets to see it, how long they store it, uh, what other purposes can be served by it. Those are all big questions that have not been resolved at all. Uh, Your new book uh, about Dark Mirror um, is a a very detailed narrative of of not only the the Edward Snowden case, but your relationship with Snowden. Um, You say in the book that you believe he did substantially more good than harm. Uh, Explain why. I think he did good in two principal ways. He enabled a debate that simply wasn't going to happen otherwise. And the one debate was, uh, how do we protect American democracy? How do you set boundaries in a democratic society between the, the actual value of intelligence and the limits that you would like to have on what the government can intrude on private lives of citizens. So it's, on one hand, he enabled a debate and some real movement on democracy. On the other, 
he manifestly made huge improvements in internet security. Uh, because of Snowden, there was suddenly a large market for privacy and security uh, um, among the internet providers, uh, the giants like Google and Microsoft and Facebook. Uh, every large entity like that began encrypting its connections to your computer. Uh, in the past, many of them had been open. Anyone along the trunk lines of the internet could intercept uh, and even alter uh, what you were doing. Uh, now you've got HTTPS, SSL, the, uh, the basics of encryption on the internet are in very, very widespread use. It's rare now to find a major site that is not encrypted. And that alone is an enormous improvement in the security and privacy of everyone in the world. Uh, but you, you, you suggest in the book that um, Snowden was more suspicious of you than he was of uh, Glenn Greenwald or Laura Poitras because of your politics or perhaps your lack of politics. You're more of a traditional, objective, investigative journalist. What do you think you saw in Snowden that uh, Laura and Glenn, uh, Laura Poitras and, and Glenn Greenwald didn't see? Well, that's interesting. I mean, everyone's got their own perspective, their own subjective encounter with reality. I saw a young man who deeply believed in what he was saying. I was uh, skeptical about his political views uh, because I wasn't interested, frankly, that much in his political views. I was interested in the information that he could provide that I could authenticate as, as being real and that I could authenticate as being accurate and that I could try to supply uh, in, in the context of newspaper stories and now in the much richer context of a narrative in Dark Mirror. Uh, I, I was interested in what he could provide. Uh, I was not interested in making him into a hero or uh, in advocating for his own personal point of view about where the line should be drawn. You spent some time in, in, uh, in Moscow talking to him. What role do you think Russia and Putin play in this narrative? Well, that's really interesting because there are uh, rightfully a lot of suspicions about that. Uh, if if you hear of someone from the intelligence community uh, leaving the United States, uh, evading the uh, uh, U.S. justice system and ending up in a place like Russia, you're going to be suspicious. Uh, nevertheless, um, as far as I can establish and as far as the U.S. government can establish, those suspicions are not justified in this case. First, Snowden did not go to Russia on purpose. He was stopped there because the U.S. State Department canceled his passport while he was in the air. Uh, he landed in Russia intending to change planes for Ecuador. And I've seen those tickets. Uh, and the Russian government said, your passport's no good anymore. And he then famously uh, got stuck in the Moscow airport, in uh, Sheremetyevo airport, for 39 days uh, before Russia granted him temporary asylum. Uh, I know that Snowden did not bring the NSA documents with him to Russia. He destroyed the encryption key, which would enable him to open it. So as soon as he gave the documents to me and the other two journalists, he he permanently removed his own ability to access them. So he didn't have them in Russia. He did that because he didn't want to be carrying anything in transit that he could be compelled to produce. Uh, U.S. government intelligence officials who talked to me, the ones who actually know, not the ones who are speculating, 
but the ones who have access to the reports tell me that there is no hard evidence for the proposition that Snowden worked for, is cooperating with the Russian government at all. He doesn't need their money. Uh, I know how he supports himself. He's got a job uh, for an American organization. He gives paid lectures. He got a lot of donations from Silicon Valley because of what he did. Uh, so he's not taking money from the Russians either. Uh, if I could find evidence that he was working for Russia or cooperating with Russia, I would have highlighted that in my book. I th would have thought that was a considerable scoop and very important, and I couldn't find it. Where do you think we are in the Snowden narrative? There's an element of sainthood about him, very much in contrast with someone like Julian Assange. Are we even the beginning of this story? Is there a second or third act in, in, in the Snowden narrative? Well, I wish my crystal ball were better. Uh, I don't. I don't buy saint or sinner. I don't buy uh, hero or traitor. The, I, I think they're sort of cartoons about the guy. I think he's a guy who made an enormous trove of intelligence available to the public at large, so that we could judge for ourselves what the boundaries ought to be. I think, unlike Snowden, uh, that it's bound to be the case that there were some losses of collection that resulted from that. That there was some damage to the intelligence gathering capabilities of the NSA, I think that was damage that was worth the debate, uh, that you can't have perfect secrecy or perfect democracy when it comes to intelligence. You can't have the public uh, managing uh, every intelligence operation, and you can't let the intelligence community decide for itself, according to secret rules and secret interpretations of the rules, what it's allowed to do. Uh, so I think we've come to a reasonable balance. But do you think that Snowden revealed the incompetence of the American government? Did he reveal a government that was made up of charlatans, of snoops, um, of information thieves? What does Snowden's work tell us about the American government, at least the American government that existed while, of course, he was doing his work? I don't think Snowden himself would uh, claim to have exposed charlatans um, or evildoers. He disagrees fundamentally with some of the policies of the NSA, but he believes the people around him were trying in general to do the right thing, uh, were trying to follow the rules as they were. The question is what the rules should be. Sometimes the, the scandal is what's legal. Uh, he also believes that some of the NSA's operations were unlawful, and there is uh, controversy over that, but fairly strong case to be made that some of what the NSA was doing, including collecting all of the call data records of all Americans uh, so that it was tracking who called whom, no matter whether it was across the street or across the country or across the world. There's a strong case to be made, and a federal judge ruled that that was illegal, uh, but there, was, there were differences on that one. It would have gone to the Supreme Court, I think, if Congress had not then outlawed the program. Uh, so I actually... I think what the documents reveal is that the NSA is very competent, uh, very good at what it does, uh, responding to incentives as it receives them, such as don't ever miss the signs of anything bad happening or we'll pillory you, uh, and, and using every tool at its disposal. We don't let police, however, do everything they'd like to do. They can't turn out the pockets of everyone in the neighborhood if something goes uh, missing. Uh, they have to have probable cause to search. And likewise, uh, we don't or shouldn't allow the NSA to do everything that it's technologically capable of doing. We ought to set boundaries. When did you last talk to Snowden? Uh, a few weeks ago. And 
what how concerned is he now about the current state of government or perhaps uh, the current uh, crisis of government in the US leaving aside Trump more on the kind of the 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 undermining of government itself that authors like Michael Lewis have exposed since Trump came to power I haven't talked to him about those things and he should probably speak for himself about them I think that he he sees the biggest gains as having been made in the private sector that technology and technologists are the answer uh, to an overbearing surveillance establishment that uh, you can protect yourself with encryption against uh, undifferentiated bulk high volume surveillance so the state of play right now in the world is it's much harder because of things that Google and Facebook and many other companies have done it's much harder for the NSA to surveil everyone, but it can still break in and surveil anyone uh, if if uh, it's determined to make them a target. But you, uh, this month, actually, you have become uh, the uh, a staff writer uh, on the Atlantic magazine, focusing on writing about the pandemic and the government's response to it, or perhaps the government's lack of response. You've done a lot of work before in this area. What's your sense of the incompetence of the American government in terms of its current response to um, to the pandemic? Well, there's actually kind of a, a stunning lack of elementary competence being displayed in terms of the core functions of a federal central government in response to a public health emergency. Uh, there is there are all the well documented. Uh, I, I guess you'd have to say. Uh, pathologies of the White House and the president personally uh, in in terms of the response of not wanting to look at uh, the public health crisis, of not wanting to admit its extent of lying and exaggerating and uh, trying to focus attention anywhere else but on the pandemic. Uh, There are the simple governmental functions of uh, providing essential supplies, of planning for a vaccine, of uh, ensuring that medical equipment and basic protective gear, you know, all these familiar problems. It appears, and this is not an area where I've reported personally, that the CDC itself, uh, leaving aside any problems with the guidance it's received from the president, has fallen very far short of its reputation and its uh, it's very strong abilities built up over years to handle a public health emergency. It's gone silent, probably not by its own choice, uh, because the president doesn't want the CDC giving briefings or doing one of its core functions, which is public communications. But its handling of testing and contact tracing and coordination and it, the, the fundamental role of synchronizing social resources to respond to a pandemic, it knows very well how to do that, or it has known in the past, and it just hasn't done it this time. How big a story is this? You have a nose for stories. Your your book about the AIDS crisis was a, a Pulitzer Prize finalist. You've you your you know your your new book on on um, on, on Snowden is already a, a bestseller. Um, is this the story? so far at least of the 21st century, the American government's 
for one reason or other, uh, incompetent response to the crisis. The pandemic and its global impact uh, is undoubtedly uh, the big story of the 21st century to date. Uh, the, the incompetence of the American government and the American response, this idea that we have the worst pandemic in the world when we had the strongest public health establishment and the, the greatest resources for addressing it is something that historians will pour over for a very long time. It is also exposing, I guess you could say, pre-existing conditions of our society uh, that left us vulnerable. Uh, that includes political preconditions, the idea that somehow it becomes a matter of tribal politics, whether this medicine or that medicine is a, is, is a, is a good one, or whether to believe science or whether to believe public health authorities. It's, a, it's suddenly a red and blue or a democratic and republican matter because everything else is subsumed into this sort of tribal animus. But it's also uh, more than just politics, uh, the grotesque inequalities of opportunity uh, and of economics in our society and the grotesque inequalities based on race um, are showing their effects in the pandemic. And so we have an egregious ratio of people who are getting sick and dying from COVID-19 who are black or brown, who are living in particular neighborhoods, uh, who don't have access to basic health resources, who are not cared for by the system. Uh, and we can't look away from that as we assess how we've responded to the pandemic. Do you think that at the moment is, is the most egregious untold story of the pandemic in the United States? The story of how uh, minority communities are being decimated by this pandemic? It's certainly one of them. It's certainly fundamental to understanding what's happened here, and I hope it will get the close attention it deserves. Are you, in, in your new role at The Atlantic, are you going to be doing that kind of frontline reporting, or are you going to be snooping around government and its inefficient and incompetent and perhaps even corrupt response to the crisis? I'll do the occasional uh, short-term piece about something that's in the news, and I will be winding up for a long investigative piece uh, that will take months to do. Uh, my sort of trademark pace is to uh, dig deep and go long, and it takes time to do that. You must be a very patient man, Bart. Where do you learn your patience? <laughs> I don't know. The people who know me best wouldn't call me patient, uh, but I just can't work any faster and, and dig as deep as I want to. Are you worried, though, uh, in all seriousness, about the way in which the crisis is also compounding, accelerating the, 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 the undermining of American journalism, of the independence of, of newspapers, the viability of their business models? Oh, it's a, it's a bloodbath uh, in the, the media economy, uh, which was already at significant risk. The, 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 the impact of the coronavirus on the economy at large uh, and on so many sectors of it is devastating, absolutely devastating. And you're now seeing uh, newspapers, news organizations, uh, old and new, that are simply going out of business or laying off 80% of their staff or stopping publication or furloughing. Uh, the, the, uh, the baffling 
problem of the internet all along has been that more people are reading and listening and viewing and consuming media than ever before. And the publishers who have to pay the expense of producing it are making less and less money uh, because the ad market has collapsed uh, and people are not in the habit of paying for the news they consume. I'm very worried about that. And like everyone else, I'm awaiting the arrival of a, of a new model that will help. I mean, let's take, for example, the Atlantic, which I've just joined. The Atlantic is picking up tens of thousands of new paying subscribers per month uh, because of its remarkably good work on the coronavirus, none of which has been done by me. Uh, it, it's just been a must-see uh, destination news supplier right now for, for, for breaking stories and also for thoughtful analysis. And more people are reading it than ever before. And yet um, ad, re ad revenue is down uh, substantially because of the economic devastation around it. Uh, it makes a lot of its money on events and live events and, and, uh, and, 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 and meetings, and those have gone to zero. Uh, and so even the Atlantic, which is in so many ways thriving, um, is at economic risk. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that on the one hand, at the beginning of this conversation, you uh, you you spoke positively of the role of, of tech companies in protecting our privacy, encrypting media against the NSA. And yet on the other hand, when it comes maybe, I don't know whether it's freedom of speech or our, our right to information, the unintended consequences of our winner-take-all tech industry is of uh, undermining freedom of speech. Is that fair? Oh, God, yeah. Don't get me started uh, on on uh, the the ills uh, brought about by uh, big tech. That uh, they've first, they, first of all, they've, they've devastated the news industry. Uh, and we've got the very familiar problem right now of how they respond to disinformation and misinformation. And no one's got the solution for that as yet. Uh, maybe a, a, another conversation, Bart, because it, it, it deserves its own half an hour. But finally, I usually end with uh, uh, a question about what you're reading, some book suggestions on the shutdown. But uh, I, I do want to get to that. But do you know what Edward Snowden's reading at the moment? Would you have any guesses <laughs> when he's when he's sitting in Moscow and he's got nothing to do? When he stopped trading Bitcoin or giving his speeches on on Zoom? You know, I haven't asked him that. That's a great question. Any any guesses? I rem Brave New World, nineteen eighty four, Huckle <laughs> Briefing. Look, he's a uh, a self educated man who um, has very wide eclectic interests, and I'm sure he's read. A good deal of the great literature on uh, totalitarianism and uh, and and Snoop society, but he's very interested in deep technical matters uh, that can help problem solve, and I think he puts most of his energy into that. So, what are you reading, Bart? As you shelter like everybody else at home during this crisis, any any suggestions on great books? Your book, of course, is an important one. The um, the, the, the new book uh, about uh, about uh, uh, Snowden, Dark Mirror. But what other books might you suggest we read? Well, I've, I've obviously read Snowden's own uh, memoir, Personal History, which, uh, sorry, that's not what it's called. 
It's called Permanent Record. Uh, it's quite good. Uh, it's very well written and very thoughtful. Um, you may not agree with all of it. I don't, but uh, definitely worth the read. Uh, for someone who's interested in secrecy, which I am, uh, secrecy and power, I would highly recommend a book by Mary Graham uh, called President's Secrets. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.